Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2023. Uh, Actually, it's not 2023. Yeah, I, uh, I realized that I needed Tim O'Reilly to correct me on that one. That was a test, Tim, to see if... Uh, if you were awake. Um, the big story of 2023, of course, was AI, and it will remain the big story of 2024. One of the issues that are carrying over from 2023 into 2024 is the New York Times' AI lawsuit against uh, OpenAI. It got uh, announced last month, and it's having all sorts of implications already. The information, a usually relatively objective uh, publication, believes that the case is quite strong. And many people believe that it could indeed put a damper on AI's 2024 ambitions. Of course, we've been through these cycles before, the hysteria, the utopian and dystopian elements. And one man who knows these cycles all too well is my guest today, Tim O'Reilly, an old friend, old foe. A frenemy of mine uh, who's been around the block more than anyone else on all these various uh, web events. Uh, he was a star of Web 1.0 as the founder and CEO of uh, O'Reilly Media. He invented the term Web 2.0 and profited from it. Uh, skeptic of Web 3, and I'm not entirely sure where he stands on OpenAI. Tim, Happy New Year. Thanks for reminding me that we're in 2024 and not 2023. Uh, Happy New Year to you and to your listeners. Or our uh, listeners. So what do you make of, of the case, uh, Tim? I know you, you, you've been following this with some care, the, the New York Times case. So uh, you've, you've long been in the intersection of creative community and tech. You understand, I think, as well as anyone, the arguments on both sides. Well, I think there's several, uh, uh, let's go out to the broadest level. And that is my belief and observation throughout my entire 40 years in the tech industry, that successful companies depend upon successful ecosystems. And if you look, for example, at, you know, the personal computer, you know, it was an explosion of entrepreneurial activity. It enabled an entrepreneurial, uh, 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 an entrepreneurial explosion, which Microsoft eventually shut down by taking too much of the value for themselves. And then you look at the web, you know, so everybody went over the internet where there wasn't a business model yet. We developed something beautiful and new. Eventually you have some big companies uh, rise up, become dominant, and again, start taking too much of the value. The initial beauty of the web was that uh, there were gatekeepers, you know, in the search engines, e-commerce companies like Amazon, eventually later social media, but they were in a kind of partnership with the ecosystem of content providers with a deal, which is, you know, we will take, say, in the case of the uh, of, of Google search, we, we will present a snippet of information about your website enough to get people interested. Maybe some people will look at the snippet and get enough. But on the whole, our job is to send you traffic. You know, Larry Page back in the very beginning of Google said, this is what distinguishes us from companies like Yahoo. You know, we want to send you on your way to someone else. And that was a virtuous 
cycle for uh, the industry. It grew many, many new kinds of businesses. And so here we are today. And first thing that's happened is companies like Google are now already presenting more and more content that which they have gathered from other people without sending back traffic. And now you have this new technology of, of generative AI, which again involves ingesting content from everyone else. And what does everyone else get back? And, and I, the, the thing I would say about things like the New York Times lawsuit, they're, they're too small minded in the sense that I don't think the issue is, um, you know, oh, pay us for our content. You know, we saw that, for example, with Google Books. And it, it, it led to, to shutting down something that could have been wonderful. You know, all the publishers were like, no, we want our, our piece of the action. But you, you have to have a model in which the people that you depend on to continue to grow your business get something out of it. You know, so if you think about this question of news in particular, uh, you know, so let's imagine for a minute that uh, OpenAI and its peers, you know, and Google with Bard are able to just sort of suck down all the latest news, produce, you know, sort of stories that are summaries of what they've read. And those summaries are complete enough, unlike a web snippet, they're complete enough to serve as a substitute for the original. Then you're choking off the air supply of of, of a set of, of, of people who need to be your partners. Because if they all go out of business, where do you get the news then? So it's just short-sighted. And I think there's also a technical uh, um, way to think about this. Uh, Andrew Ng just wrote an article where he was sort of defending uh, the AI developers, uh, but I'm not sure he got it right. And the reason he didn't get it right, he, he, he mentioned, he said, look, we don't really know, you know, the, the lawsuit's weak because it doesn't really get into the technical details. How often does this- This is Andrew Yang, right? Andrew Eng. Oh, Andrew, Andrew Yang. Right, okay. Uh, uh, famous AI uh, uh, personality, Stanford professor and founder of uh, a number of companies. Uh, but he um, is, so basically there's two ways that a, large language model can generate content. And the first one is you, you've got this uh, model which has uh, been trained and has, has these things which you call model weights, which are basically, uh, you know, the, the effectively the predictive power. When you ask a question, uh, the weights say, well, how, how likely is the next word going to be this one rather than that one, right? And so all of that uh, is uh, generated in this, the, the weights are generated through this massive training process, which is fundamentally periodic. You know, uh, you know when, when uh, OpenAI first came out, it was a year or two old, you know? Yeah. We don't have current data. And then, so how do they get current data? And it's something that they call, uh, there's a pattern that's been developed, which they now call RAG, or Retrieval Augmented Generation, which is you basically you know, mix it with search. And you can see this very clearly in the Google uh, uh, experimental AI, you know, uh, in search results, where it gives you a summary. And it's giving you a summary often of current news. So it's clearly not coming from the uh, uh, 
model weights, it's coming from a RAG process. And so if you have that RAG process, you're literally taking something current from the news provider, and then you're spitting back out potentially a substitute. It's, it's, it's short-sighted. Now, the yeah, article- just wrote a piece uh, uh, about this uh, in December on, uh, on the RAG pattern. So this is something you've given quite a lot of thought to. Yeah, well, that's a slightly different uh, case, although it's, it's very relevant because we were, we're thinking about it a lot at O'Reilly because we think about the fact, you know, we're not a dominant company who can push people around. You know, we have to make it good for the people who provide information into our platform. So just the backdrop, O'Reilly has become an online information provider, online learning. Uh, you know, we have we have uh, you know, tens of thousands of books, tens of thousands of hours of video, you know, on technical training and business training. And we compensate our authors and providers so that they will keep providing content for us. You know, and we're very mindful of the fact you know, many of our innovations have come from saying, how do we make more money for the people who we need to provide content for our platform? And you contrast that with the big tech companies who basically are increasingly commoditizing all of their suppliers and saying, we don't really need you. You're just, you know, Ben, uh, sorry, um, uh, um, uh, ben Thompson's Stratechery talks about this pattern of, of commodifying your suppliers, uh, uh, you know, these internet aggregators. And that's actually, a, I think, a long-term weakness of, of, of the current internet giants. And, and, and it's a weakness from the beginning of uh, the big LLM companies because they're not thinking enough about how does this become sustainable? Who will create the new content? You know, so as I said, in, in the web, it was a fairly virtuous circle. Where... Let me jump in, Tim, because not everyone will agree. I, I'm not yeah. sure I do. You and I have crossed swords on this before. Some people would argue that they wouldn't disagree with your idea that successful companies depend on successful ecosystems. Yeah. But they might argue that the Web 2.0 ecosystem benefited the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, but not newspapers, not publishing companies, of all, all of whom have had a, a pretty rough ride over the last 20 years. Yeah, you know, the thing I would say about that is that um, it, 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 you can have a very shallow analysis of that. You know, th there's so many levels of disruption to the news, newspaper business and the publishing business in general. Uh, and let me start with one, Craigslist. You know, one of the biggest disruptors of, you know, local news was not, you know, uh, Facebook and Google and, you know, uh, and other online services. It was the disruption of classified advertising by, by services like Craigslist. Because all of a sudden, you know, this source of local monopoly profits, which supported the news, went away. And so... There was a kind of disruption there that, you know, that, that left something of a void, no question. But I don't think it was created by the companies that are now being asked to pay for it. And, and I, I do think that, you know, we end up, and I, I look in general at the balance of, is there, you know, there's certain, there's, there's pockets of news that are really missing, but there's more news today than there was in the heyday of 
of local newspapers, quite honestly. There's just not more local news. And I think people have struggled to have uh, a business model for it. But some of these changes and, and some of those things really matter. And we have to think about how to uh, fill that gap. But I don't think we should have facile storylines about why it's some big bad company's fault. You know, and I think about this very much in, in my industry, publishing. Uh, you know, I crossed swords a few times with, uh, with the New York publishers, you know, who were monopolistic gatekeepers who had very high profits. And suddenly, you know, uh, as Clay Shirky put it, the Internet changed the model from curate, then publish to publish, then curate. And we got all kinds of new content that would never have made it through the day through Random House or whatever. And you, you think about, uh, you know, now what's happening with with with, uh, you know, the explosion of content on Substack. I, I, you know, I, I, I pay for I get massive amounts of news from uh, people like Adam Tews or, or Brad DeLong. Uh, or Noah Smith or, or, or Matt Iglesias, you know, and a lot of perspective and content that I used to get in the newspaper. And now it's individuals who have a, a subscription newsletter. And I think that that uh, and there's niche publications in our industry like The Information. And I, I, I th thought of this back in the early days of, um, uh, you know, even on the Web. Uh, I remember when we launched GNN which was the first uh, web portal back in 1993. And we were going around ev evangelizing uh, different companies. And I remember we talked to CMP Media, which uh, you probably don't remember, but they were a big pub uh, publisher of industry trade journals. You know, so, you know, computer system news, um, uh, you know, computer retailer, whatever. There are all kinds of, of vertical market magazines. And I went out and I talked to the, the CEO and he said, hey, if we can't get a, a, a publication to, you know, to, to uh, you know, $10 million, uh, you know, in, in, in two years, we, we, we throw it away. And that was true in, 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 well, let me actually just stay on that, this, this thought. And, and then along came TechCrunch, you know, for whom, you know, $10 million of revenue was a fortune because they had a very different cost structure. And so Mike Arrington became very successful in a in a market that CMP just said, oh, that just doesn't work, and that was true of O'Reilly too. In in just our book publishing business, our original book publishing business, we our first print runs were stuff that anybody else would have thrown away. They were saying, we if we can't sell at least ten thousand copies of a book, we won't do it. And we started publishing books with a print run uh, of, of a few hundred, you know, like literally that went on to sell a million copies because we kept selling them. You know, whereas they were like, nah, you know, it's just we're, we're fishing for bestsellers. And so there's a, a there's been an Internet business model change, which hurts some people. But it, it does enable n new opportunities and new entrepreneurs and new kinds of businesses to succeed. The ones we have to worry about are the ones where somebody gets big very fast and they suck up all of the air supply. Open AI, in other words. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm writing a piece right now called uh, Open AI Has an Uber Problem. And uh, that's a reference to an idea that I've talked about. And, you know, it hasn't really caught on. But I, I think we switched at some point in the, the, the tech industry from a world in which 
customers chose the winners to a world in which the investors choose the winners. It really started with Uber. You know, if you look at Google, Google, I think, raised uh, $37 million, and that was all they had to raise. And it really struck me because Sunil Paul, who really invented the model of, uh, that was exploited by Uber and Lyft, he was the one who figured out that you could use GPS uh, to connect driver and, and, you know, he had this thing called Sidecar, and he raised $35 million and got crushed because Uber and Lyft raised billions. And how might that market have developed if the technology had spread in the way the web had spread? If there had been lots of experimentation, there had not been early anointed winners. There had been, you know, different companies were in different locations, for example, were trying uh, different ways of paying drivers, attracting drivers, attracting customers, uh, charging uh, their users. And somebody came up with a new winning formula in the same way that, for example, Google you know, uh, coming onto the web, eventually found a winning formula that had not been discovered by others. Instead, we had the VCs picked winners and picked a winning business model. So there's a kind of central planning in Silicon Valley VC today. And so right now we have this situation where we have a couple of big winners who have been anointed by massive investors. And I think they're going to choke off the air supply of innovation prematurely. Tim, how much of this is technologically related? Um, these companies like OpenAI and Anthropic, they all have massive investment, partly as, as you imply, because they're, it's a huge race to control a massive future market, but partly because you need that kind of money to have the service to serve up these AIs. How much of it is, is changed technologically? And, and, and what are the opportunities for genuine startup people in this new economy? Yeah, well, first off, I do think it's true that there are high costs to training models. Uh, but it's also the case that, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear that we're going too fast. Right. And so what if we were going more slowly and training smaller models? Would we be better off? You know, just like we might have been better off if uh, you know, Austin, Texas had experimented with local car hail in a different way than Boston, Massachusetts, in a different way from San Francisco. And we already see some of that with the smaller open source models growing in, in capability. And, you know, so I don't think that we actually have to be moving as fast to get really big models really fast, particularly when everybody's going, oh, my God, they might be out of control. We're scared about them. I go, well, then fucking slow down. And the way you slow down is you make the returns to capital less uh, attractive. You know, I, I think that the, the issue that we have, you know, I was talking about this with Yosha Bengio recently, and he had never really thought about this. I said, look, the biggest single risk is that people become bad actors because they're trying to win the AI race, you know? Uh, uh, and that's what we see in, in tech. You know, you have a virtuous period where everybody's trying to do the right thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden they go, well, we actually, we have to win. We have to become more profitable. And they start doing bad things for that reason. And so I, I guess I would just sort of say, you know, we're in this rogue period of capitalism. Uh, if you contrast, for example, the rise of say chip companies, which also cost a lot of money. In fact, cost a lot more money 
than training an AI model. But they grew up in an era where investors weren't expecting the kinds of thousand X returns on massive investments that they are today. You know, it was real investment with a, with a, a much more limited horizon. But people have gotten super greedy. You know, it's just like they, this, people are so used to massive payouts that, you know, when, when something is expensive, it has to become even more massive a payout. What do you think the responsibility of large tech companies, Microsoft obviously were intimately involved both as partners and investors with OpenAI, Google you've already mentioned them, they have their own AI initiatives, uh, Amazon of course. Do, do these companies have a particular responsibility here? And, and can, we, can we expect this given their histories of, of, of not really being particularly accountable or responsible? Well, I think that uh, the thing I most take away from companies like Google are because the founders were so idealistic and have been so idealistic is that ultimately our companies are all subservient to a flawed idea of the market. They're, they're subservient to a rogue capitalism, really. Uh, that's, you know, and I, I laugh because the very model of, uh, you know, the, of, of the thing that people are most fear to fear about AI is that somebody will give this machine a command and it will run amok. And I go, well, that's a description of our financial markets. You know, starting in the, in the early 80s, we told our, uh, our companies that their primary goal was to increase their profits. You know, that's Milton Friedman. You know, uh, the social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. And ever since then, you know, we basically seen the disregarding of other goals, which is is exactly Nick Bostrom's paperclip maximizer. You know, and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we we basically created a, a a monster that keeps asking for more, more, more. And investors, and it's really under the control of people. I, I wrote a piece uh, last year called, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, I don't remember the exact title, but it, it's it's basically the notion is uh, that, that corporate governance was our test run on AI governance. And if we have not been able to get corporate governance right, we're not going to get AI governance right. So history then isn't really repeating itself. It's converging in, a, in an odd kind of surreal way. The, the test run, in a sense, was a, a massive failure, in another sense, a huge success. I mean, what does it tell us about what we do and don't need to do today? Well, I think it tells us that we need a fundamental change in the rules of our economy. And, and certainly when I think about the 21st century, I wrote a piece right around the turn of the Millennium, uh, uh, turn of the of, of the of the decade, uh, called uh, "Welcome to the 20th Century." You know, I, I just I, I said the pandemic was really the beginning of the the true beginning of the 21st century, in the same way that World War One was the uh, sorry the true beginning of the 21st century, in the same way that World War One was the true beginning of the 20th century. Uh, you know, we basically suddenly are waking up to the consequences of all these things that we have kind of skated by and not taken care of, you know, climate change, potential pandemics, 
mass migrations, warfare, uh, and this and this you know rogue capitalism. And and you you look at this and you go, how at what point will we say, wow, you know, it's not okay that oil companies are still trying to uh, you know wring out profits from the system, you know, just like it's not okay that. That, uh, that, that pharma companies were peddling opioids that they knew were harmful, that tobacco companies were peddling cigarettes that they knew were harmful. You know, uh, at what point does our sort of consumer-driven economy, consumption-driven economy, uh, change into something different, you know, that doesn't require manufacturing stuff to be thrown away? And, and so you see all of these self-interested decisions that are being made in the market but they're not just ma being made in the market they're being made in the rules of the market and so that's why i think a lot about economics as the you know as almost like the fundamental science that we have to master in the can you uh, you wrote about this in in a lot of detail in your last book what's the future and why it's up to us yeah you know if, if we had um Sam Altman on the show, I think he would probably in many ways agree with you. Um, you've 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 spoken and written on the idea of generosity. It's one of your pet subjects. Altman is a big supporter of effective altruism, which didn't get a very good press with Sam Bankman Freed. It's <laughs> a slightly better one with people like Altman. If if Altman was on the show, I'm not sure how well you know him and how much you've spoken to him about all this stuff. What would you say to him about the 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 way in which he seems to be able to carry the morality of altruistic of effective altruism with being CEO of OpenAI? Is there some contradiction there, or do they naturally go together? Is that the, the most chilling quality of twenty of the twenty twenties? Well, first off, I think that the original idea of effective altruism was uh, to figure out, you know, rationally, what are the interventions that would make the most difference uh, to the maximal, you know, prosperity, not just of current, but of future generations. And that then became uh, perverted is a strong word, but probably an accurate one, perverted uh, into a focus on the, the risk of, of, you know, catastrophic AI. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating working on a piece uh, with a friend of mine who's a, a uh, among other things, a professional magician uh, about the role of misdirection in uh, the current debate about uh, AI regulation. You know, it's like, let's get everybody focused on this, you know, this tail risk. Of, of rogue AI so that we don't have anybody looking at the current risks and the current business practices. That's why I'm focused right now on this project to increase disclosure because and, and, you know the thing that's really interesting, if you actually have more disclosure of you know say model weights, some people say, oh, this is very risky. Other people say, no, no, not so risky. Uh, I'm, I'm not enough of a technical expert to know who's right in that debate. But I, I am quite confident that disclosure of model weights would make the industry more competitive and less profitable, right? Yeah, you had a piece in the standard, but 
given your structural critique of capitalism, is more disclosure, is that really going to address the core problem? No. Uh, you know, um, there's this great quote from, I think it was Pope Paul, John, sir, so Pope Paul XXIII, Pope John XXIII, mm. uh, he, he said, uh, uh, see everything, uh, ignore a lot, improve a little. And I, 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 I guess what I would say is, ultimately, uh, what's going to it, what's going to either kill us or save us are some of the great crises that we are currently uh, you know whistling by you know like climate change and 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 the complicity of our economic system in in forcing us in, in helping us avoid dealing with it um, you know and and I, I think that the race for monopoly and monopoly profits is a, a kind of very close to the heart of that cancer in our economic system where investors are no longer you know investing to create value for you know again one of one of my you know mottos at o'reilly was create more value than you capture and the motto of silicon valley today is create uh, capture more value than you create uh and it's not sustainable. And so I guess what I would sort of say to Sam, coming back to your question, is I get that you're really idealistic. And there's a lot of, of, of ideas that I, I, I you, you may be right about, you know, that for example, AI could really help us with many of these great problems, you know, helping us understand and deal with climate change. But unless you look in the mirror and understand the incentives at the heart of our economy and how your company is being driven by those incentives, I don't think that you will truly be able to, to be altruistic because altruism and uh, monopoly are, I think, not terribly compatible because First of all, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in a certain way. <laughs> you, you could say I'm a um, I'm a progressive Hayekian, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Hayek's article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, which is, is uh, you know, this foundational work uh, was really around the idea that no individual knows as much as everybody. Right. And, and the market is a way of. Of, of capturing more knowledge uh, about more decisions uh, than any any central planning could ever have. Now, I've often thought that, that, that the uh, the internet, and particularly companies like Google and Amazon, have demonstrated massive advances in market coordination. Because in in the, in the, the Hayekian vision, market coordination. Uh, you know, was really the, the the invisible hand was really the invisible hand of prices, the the, the willingness of a, a buyer and seller to transact, and they will. You know, the whole idea is that somebody who has a better use for a scarce resource will pay more for it, and that magical uh, knowledge that this is worth more to me is is really what's going to make the optimal use of. You know, as he calls it, the optimal use of knowledge in society. And yet, if you look at Google in particular, 
here is this global market matching providers of content, providers of services, providers of products with purchasers and or consumers. And in the case of Google in particular, it's using hundreds of factors, not one of which is price, to understand that matching and, and got really, really good at it. And so it has seemed to me like this massive failure in the last 10 years to watch the price-based and money-based market system start to pervert the incentives of companies like Google and Amazon. So, you know, Amazon, you know, we're going to use all these factors. Yes, we're, it's a priced market, but we're going to use all these factors to figure out what's really the best match for your search. And now they've discovered, oh, this is an ad business. And the best match for your search happens to be the one that makes us the most money. And suddenly, surprise, that, surprise, right? You know, and, and that's what we, we just wrote these papers uh, as part of this project at UCL about yeah, Amazon. Yeah, it's and, cool. and, and you wrote it with Mariano Mazzucato, Mazzucato, and uh, Elon Strauss. I, algorithmic attention rents, a theory of digital platform marketing. <laughs> as a uh, as a progressive uh, uh, Hayekian, as you 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 suggested earlier, Tim, what should the role of government be? You you wrote something about your thoughts on the the White House executive order on AI back in October. Yeah. Um, what should and shouldn't the role of government? You've come up with this vision of reforming capitalism, which in 2024, with maybe Donald Trump being reelected, yeah, it's not the very realistic. What what should government be doing here? Should it be standing back, letting the market operate? No. I, first of all, I believe that um, you know, with Mariana, Mariana has this line that she uses all the time. She said, the classical economists didn't think that a free market was a market free of government inter interference. They thought the free market was a market free of rents. And rents are basically unearned income that you get from having power. You know, or, or access to a or control over a scarce resource, and we have an economy that's rife with rents. And and basically, so uh, you know, these papers that I was writing about were how the control of attention in companies like Google and Amazon and Meta is there is what gives them the ability to extract rents from their suppliers and from their customers. And um, so first of all, government should be making it harder for, for people to, to unfairly uh, extract rents. And But the biggest thing that I think the government has done wrong in the last you know, few decades has been to radically change the, uh, the return to capital. You know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a book like you know Piketty's economic. Um, mm. uh, he has a little, uh, no, a little short book that he wrote originally in the seventies, but an update. Or, no, sorry, the nineties, ninety-seven, been updated, called "The Economics of Inequality." And uh, he was sort of talking a lot about, you know, he, he talks a lot about the the labor share versus the capital share and how it's pretty stable. And it's really lost its stability, and it's lost its stability. Because uh, for two reasons, I just and, and one is 
that um, with the massive infusions of, of, of liquidity into the market, and this has been happening you know, really since the, the, the financial crisis of 2009, 2010. So the last 12 years, you've had incredibly cheap money. And instead of, you know, I remember Larry Summers just tearing his hair out saying, if we were ever going to rebuild our infrastructure, you know, why wouldn't we do it in a period where we can borrow money at zero interest rates? Never waste a great build our infrastructure. And instead, what did we do with it? We gave it to companies and individuals to gamble. We basically, and, and the way we gave it to them to, to gamble was that we have incredibly low tax rates on effectively gambling. You know, Web3 was not building anything. It was gambling. You know, gambling that somebody would be uh, you know, a greater fool and would buy into this thing later. And then, of course, when the things go poof, there's nothing left. You know, there's, we've lost the plot on what is actual investment. You know, when, when, when people give Elon Musk money and he builds a gigafactory, that's investment. When you give money and somebody makes bored apes, that is not investment, that's gambling. And, you know, it's just, it's sort of a beauty contest. And so much of our startup ecosystem has become you know, kind of a beauty contest where nobody's trying to build a real business. So is your critique of the tax system, of the venture capital ecosystem, what, what needs to be reformed first? Well, it, you know, first of all, you have to be pragmatic. And you go, I go, if I had a magic wand, I would basically, I would, uh, you know, I would uh, change the, the, the tax code. You know, I, I know that's a very heavy lift and there's no way I have the ability to do it. But just as a good example, one I, I've used many times over the years, you know, Carl Icahn made as much money from Apple as Steve Jobs did. There's something wrong with that. You know, one guy built something amazing and he, he has long term capital gains on his great. But Carl Icahn bought some stock from a company that didn't actually need his money. Right. He just bought some stock and he held it for a few years and then used the, that stock position to force Apple to do stock buybacks to drive up the value. And he walked away with billions of dollars. Yeah, you know, no value created, just value extracted. And we built, uh, you know, so the first thing I would do is I go, OK, investment means you are creating and building value. If you're just extracting value, that's ordinary income. You know, and if you suddenly had a you know, a, a much higher tax rate on that, it would be a break. It would be a break on this sort of crazy investment in things that were not creating lasting value. And so I, that would be one thing I would do. But in the absence of that, you know, well, what are some other breaks that we can put on bad behavior? And I think one is we increase transparency. And that's why I'm focused so much on this idea of disclosures. Because when you can actually see what companies are doing uh, uh, a it increases competition because other people can say oh oh that's how they're they're winning i want to do that too uh you know but we've ended up having uh you know we, we have kind of a, a very weak system which has been captured you know and I, I guess this goes all the way back to my work back around the turn of the of the millennium 2000 2001 with with uh, Amazon's one-click patent, you know, and 
realizing just how patents, which were originally designed to be a trade-off where we, we, we show you how to do this thing uh, and make everybody smarter. And in return, you know, we will, uh, you know, uh, uh, society will give you a, a, a limited term monopoly on this. And instead, what we 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 end built built is we'll give you a limited term monopoly, and we'll let you get away with telling us something that is so obscure that nobody can even figure out what you did. You know, like like I used to talk about this with, uh, you know, why for software patents you should have to submit source code just like you used to have to have a working model of an invention, and uh, that would have basically then been a fair trade for that li limited monopoly. And in a similar way, kind of going back to this disclosure work that I was doing at UCL uh, on, on big tech, you look at a company like Alphabet, which has, uh, it's actually, there's another uh, uh, earlier article on, it's called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons. Um, and, and it's really about this notion of these companies that have products with billions of users, immense market power. and absolutely no requirement to disclose at all. Google says, hey, we've got nine products with more than a billion users, but hey, it's just one business, it's advertising. You don't need to know anything about these, these businesses. You know, and uh, so, you know, we, this is my colleague Elon Strauss came up with this idea of reforming segment reporting, which is this obscure thing in the SEC, which was originally designed to, to level the playing field between big and small companies by saying- 2024, promises to be the year in which you've, you've brought up Alphabet and Google a lot in this conversation, where there are a number of antitrust cases being heard yeah. both in and out of the Supreme Court. Can that change anything, leaving aside government, if we look at the courts and changes in IP law, a lot of writing and thinking on that? I know you've given that a great deal of thought. Could, could, could these cases change everything? And might they reform this AI, this monopolistic AI market before it becomes the nightmare that you might be predicting? Maybe, but that's not really how I think about it. I actually uh, think a lot about this uh, wonderful quote from Milton Friedman, who I, I usually bash uh, because of his, uh, his shareholder value. Uh, yes, Friedman and Hayek, Tim, you're changing your ways. No, no, I'm not. I'm basically saying if you really understand these, uh, what these guys, what they, they, they purport to believe, then you, you can come to some very different conclusions. So, uh, but, but what, what uh, Friedman said that was, he, he said, uh, this is in the early days of, of the formation of the Montpelerin Society. He said, uh, uh, change only happens when a crisis comes. And when a crisis comes, uh, people come up with the response based on the ideas that are lying around. What we have to do is have our ideas lying around uh, when the next crisis comes. Are we in a crisis? I think we, some people believe we are with Trump and the environment. I, I believe we're heading for one. You, you never know when it's going to happen exactly or what's going to be the trigger. In the case of of uh, you know neoliberalism and and that moment that Friedman was waiting for um, was um, you know it was it was the, the the you know massive inflation of the early seventies you know the oil price shock and, and all that and it destabilized everything enough that that uh, you know it led to a 
uh, you know, a new approach to the economy. It was, you know, there's a wonderful book called uh, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order by Gary Gerstle. Yeah, Gary's been on the show a couple of times. Yeah, and I found it really uh, interesting. Uh, and, and what's missing at the end of that book, he's saying, okay, we're, we're coming to the end of the neoliberal order. Right. He doesn't, and he doesn't know, know what comes next. next. Well, yeah, and I think he, he overdoes the end. But what does come next then? Tim, finally, you've been very generous with your time. Can AI help us figure out what comes after neoliberalism? What would you like to see come after? And how, how can a well-implemented AI, one in which um, you create both successful companies and successful ecosystems, the ultimate ecosystem, of course, is society? Yeah, I guess I, I, I see AI as a means not a not a, a fundamentally transformative thing in and of itself you know like if you think about say you know uh uh getting out of the great depression you know the the rise of the of, of the uh of the new deal order uh you know it was a set of ideas about what society ought to be like and it was politics, and and isn't that what's really missing? You dancing around that one? No, I, I, I totally agree. You know, and I remember when when my book WTF came out uh, in twenty sixteen. I was on Kara Swisher's show, and she keeps talking about. She says, "You keep talking about we and us. Who's we?" And and I said, "You know, the biggest thing that makes change is when people come to believe something different." You know, and I was very uh, uh, influenced by the stories of the American Revolution. And, uh, you know, George III, when he heard that George Washington, rather than becoming king in America, had just gone back to his farm, he said, if he has done that, he is the greatest man in the world. This was a new idea that suddenly, you know, that a country would not be run by a strong, you know, by, by a, a king. You know, it was the first time in history where that really was broadly accepted. and. And, uh, you know, those kinds of changes of ideas about how society will be organized are, are really the only thing that it are, 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 will change. Uh, and, and those well, where are those ideas coming? Are coming from perhaps from you, from Mariana, uh, from Mariana? Who, who else are you reading who, who are thinking differently on all this stuff? Well, I, I think there's so many people who are thinking differently. It, it's really just, you've got to look around and say, how do all of these things that seem unrelated come together? You know, mm -hmm. so my son-in-law, Saul Griffith, is writing about this in the context of, of climate and energy. He wrote this wonderful uh, uh, sort of almost short book called, um, uh, it was about electrification in, in, in Australia. It's called The Wires That Bind and how we can use the energy transition as the basis for a new kind of economy. Uh, there's a lot of people who, you know, it's a lot like, you know, I don't know how where we are in the timeline of this transition. You know, I think, you know, if you think about, for example, through the 1890s and you had the whole progressivism and, you know, uh, uh, and then you had the trust busting and so on. You had all these things around the turn of the millennium, you know, 1890s through the, and then you end up with the, 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 the roaring twenties and the, uh, you know, and then the crash, you know, so that was a, like a 50 year period of this battle between progressivism and, 
you know, this uh, rogue capitalism. And it broke in this very unexpected way because of this war in Europe. And then a Great Depression. And then another war in Europe. And so I, I think we're going to have this succession of crises that will make us have to change the rules. And the question is, will we have a robust body of ideas and a robust set of tools that will help us to change the rules? And that's why I'm fascinated by this ability of technology platforms to coordinate markets using algorithms and, in the, and using AI. And then you go, well, okay, so if we do that in a way that is, is focused on creating collective value rather than extractive value, <clears throat> we may be onto something. 